listeners to a bonus episode. This episode will be deviating from our regular series theme. We've been exploring lenses. However, we're sidestepping to offer you some special bonus material. In addition to the regular podcast, Beyondering also runs live events. And so we hope to bring you recordings of those as special bonus episodes. This special episode is offering you our recordings from our most recent live event, an interfaith panel exploring progressive approaches to faith from the Christian, Jewish and Islamic faith traditions. Now the panellists will introduce themselves, one of whom you might recognise in Matt, uh, but I'm going to hand over to our MC for the evening, Lucas Taylor. Over to you, Lucas. Okie doke. Thanks very much. Well, allow me to add my welcome, folks. It's great to be here. We're in for a really fun night. Are you looking forward to it? Good. Good. Some positive affirmation here at the front. You at the back, you can be a little bit more positive, a little bit louder. We are in for a really fun night. We, um, we caught up for lunch together last week uh, to have a bit of conversation about some of the questions that might come up and some of the topics that we might like to cover. And we finished that by saying, you know what, regardless of what happens here, we should just catch up more and have more, more dinners. So, uh, so certainly the four of us here are really looking forward to the conversation tonight. I guess the, uh, the spirit that I would like to invite you to is one of curiosity and wonder. And I, I'm, I'm presuming that that's probably a bit of a heart conviction for many of you anyway, a conviction that, uh, that curiosity is a way of, of life which, which opens up our borders, which opens up our eyes and stretches our horizons. And so uh, you're going to hear from um, some, some diverse perspectives uh, and yet you're going to hear some really strongly similar themes, I'm sure, coming through each of them. So... It's going to be fantastic. So sitting, uh, sitting alongside me here, we have uh, Reverend Matt Cutler. Uh, you can call him Matt when you speak to him. That's, that's fine. Uh, we have Rabbi Alison Konya. You can, speak, you can call her Rabbi Alison. And we have Reem Swede. You can call her Reem the Magnificent. <laughs> is what she instructed me to, <laughs> to tell you. So friends... Uh, let's begin just with uh, a, a bit of a short summary of personal story. Who are you and why have you gravitated to the progressive aspects of your own faith tradition? Reem, would you like to kick us off? Oh, sorry, Reem the Magnificent. Um, okay, a little background about who I am. Um, I, uh, I come from... My parents are Syrian. They were born and raised in Damascus. Um, and they emigrated to the U.S. when they were married, um, and they they had me there, and my twin sister, and my other sister and brother. And then I grew up in the U.K. for a while until I was nine, and then we moved to Saudi Arabia. So I had a bit of Saudi Arabian um, experiences until I was about 13, and then to Dubai, and high school in Dubai. Then I went back to the US for college, uh, and I studied my bachelor's there. Then I went back to Dubai for a year after my parents nagged me forever. <laughs> then, I, then I went to the UK, did my master's, where I met my husband, who is Australian, and has brought me here. So I've landed here. And in terms of my faith journey, the moving around a lot made me really realize the diversity of Muslims across the world. And it got me really interested in understanding more about how our faith really manifests in the way we live it. Um, and I think when I, when I met my husband, who is an Anglo-Australian, it made me have to ask myself some really hard questions about what I 
believed um, and what I uh, was willing to just kind of allow myself to live as a matter of culture and custom. So as you may know, for in, in Muslim culture, it's pretty taboo for a Muslim woman to marry outside of her faith. Um, and I looked in the scripture and looked around, and that was the beginning of my journey, trying to figure out, did I actually believe that? Did I believe that I wasn't capable of being married to someone who didn't share my faith, that I would somehow lose it? And I think that was the start of my, my journey into trying to figure out where the differences lied between what I was being told and what was actually in the scripture. Um, and uh, I think I'm still on that journey, obviously. And, and I started Muslims for Progressive Values here um, two years ago. It was partly because I was looking for other people to join me on it. Um, I was kind of feeling that I couldn't find a uh, answer on my own just by sinking myself into books. I needed to talk to others, and I was sure that there would be other Muslims in Australia that felt this way, that were trying to, to ask the hard questions and to tackle between these different lines of what was really in their relig religion and faith and what was really their culture. And lo and behold, there are many, and I've been very lucky to meet amazing Muslims as part of this journey, and I'm just continuing to explore with them. Thanks, Rain. Rabbi Ellison, what do you share? So I come from California, as you can hear. And uh, my father's an actor. My mother uh, was a primary school teacher for most of my life. And um, they are both Jewish, both born Jewish. Um, both didn't practice Judaism really at all. My mother's family, totally secular. And my father's family was more... Um, Yiddishkeit. It was. It, it had more of a cultural connection. Uh, nobody ever set foot in a synagogue, but they would gather for the Jewish festivals for the food because there's traditional food. So I grew up with my dad's side of the family, knowing the foods to eat at the festivals. Um, but that was about it. And songs in in usually in Yiddish, sometimes in Hebrew, but mostly um, Yiddish. But that was it. My mother's side of the family, absolutely um, nothing. And when I was about ten years old, I had a friend whose mother was not Jewish and father was Jewish and they got married and she needed to convert to Judaism. And I said, why? And because uh, I didn't know at the age of 10 what that meant. And um, anyway, she had to go through this journey along with her mother. And um, she, we went to the Pacific Ocean in Los Angeles and, and she dove under three uh, waves. And I thought, oh, that's amazing. It is freezing. And um, <laughs> you are doing this to become Jewish. And I am Jewish. I probably should figure out more what that's about. And um, so I went, to, I went to Hebrew school with her and um, where I was told and called a bad Jew because, um, which still, if you say those words to me, err. Um, but uh, but uh, yeah, so, so I don't like those terms. But they, they took, they stole my teddy bear and they threw it over and said, you're bad Jew because we didn't celebrate Shabbat. I didn't even know what Shabbat was. They, you know, because we didn't keep kosher, because we didn't do all of these things. And I thought, ooh. And I wanted to learn about it, but I didn't like being told I was bad. So I left that place, as you can imagine. And, um, but I didn't give up on Judaism altogether because already the fire, the spark had been lit. So. So, um, so I went and I researched and I found a what was called in America a reform uh, synagogue or temple as they call it in America and um, I loved it. It was fantastic. Nobody told me I was bad. And uh, not only that, they gave me a scholarship to go on a leadership camp in, it was in New York, 
And um, so when I was 14, so I went on this, this camp and I told, actually before then I told my parents I want to celebrate my bat mitzvah. And my parents said, why would you do a thing like that? How about if you go travel instead? We'll give you money to travel. Why waste the money on a big party? All of my other friends were like, please, can my parents say that to me? Um, but no, I was the rebellious kid, and my rebellion was to prove to my father how much I wanted to celebrate my bat mitzvah, which um, I have been doing ever since. He still hasn't forgiven me. Um, in fact, when I did tell him eventually that I was going to become a rabbi, he says, oh, God, what did I do wrong? And I said, most parents, they're proud of their children. Anyway, so um, anyway, so, so we ended up going, and, and so I celebrated my bat mitzvah. I had, I had to do this whole project for my father to tell him that Judaism was important to me, and, um, and apparently I passed. And so I celebrated my bat mitzvah. I went on this Jewish leadership camp when I was 14, loved it. And uh, it, it was, again, with the Reform Movement, which is the liberal branch of Judaism. And, um, and I found my, my place in my home there. Um, 10 years later, I ended up meeting my husband at that same camp. And uh, my husband's from South Africa, so it was kind of a fluke. He was literally passing through, traveling through America. And um, anyway, his family immigrated to Sydney, so that's how I ended up in, in, in Australia. Um, there's more to the story, but I'm sure I'm out of time. So uh, you'll hear many more stories as the night progresses. Thanks, Rabbi Ellison. I love that uh, you, you were effectively the, uh, the child of the circus performer who grew up and told their parents they wanted to run away to become an accountant. Right that's great. Yeah. <laughs> Matthew, what's your story? Yeah, I just feel so boring and bland compared to these beautiful stories. Uh, I've gone through 13 countries growing up. No, it's not true. Um, my story is probably I'm brought up in a very staple, conservative uh, Christian household and probably not primed to go on the progressive journey. Uh, my family are not likely to attend here tonight. They're not on the same journey I am. My experience primarily, I've been a minister in three different contexts, in Melbourne South, in Melbourne's East, yeah, largely as a youth and young adult minister. And um, for me, one of my formative experiences was attending college. We were at a fairly progressive college at that time with a female um, uh, principal and a fantastic staff and faculty of people. And I was on the student committee and we wanted to do some further engaging with the stuff that we were, were finding out that wasn't actually the same as what we were hearing from the pulpits in Sunday. So we wanted to, to throw it around. I was living on campus and so we got our heads together and we said, well, let's create a group and we called it Faith Wrestling Federation, the FWF. <laughs> so a bunch of us got together to wrestle around, uh, not so much physically, but with these ideas that we were, were coming across. So we would meet and basically what we'd do is we'd, we'd come up with a topic and we just write that topic on the board and as a collective, we just brainstorm the questions that emerged for us. Then we'd break into groups and we'd just go through those questions. A lot of the faculty would come to this too, so we'd be able to see them unrobed and uncloaked and just throwing around their thoughts and, and other students would just roll up and we'd throw it around. And I remember the very first week, we just went, well, let's start soft. Who or what is God? And we all just threw out all the questions we had. And fascinatingly, we all had heaps. And others had questions we didn't. And all these amazing questions came up. We broke into groups and round the table we went. And it was fascinating, mainly because the responses were different. Someone would say, oh, I see God sort of as, a, as an energy. And someone else would say, well, this is my experience. And all of the responses would be allowed to be held and heard as they were. No one contested it or challenged it. I went, hey, but hang on, what does the Bible say about? And I remember that very first week so distinctively going, this is unlike any of the religious spaces I'd been in to this point. And I'd been in small groups where I'd been the driver of saying, no, no, but scripture actually says, and, 
and yet I, I'd done that. I, and yet here I was just receiving the grace of open space, receiving the permission to ask the questions that were there already, but I just actually hadn't had the freedom to ask. So that sent me on the journey of inquiry. And for me, the progressive journey, more than anything, is about curiosity, is about the permission to ask the question and to follow the question and to honour mystery. And perhaps that's partly why I've continued to follow in that stream because that's just the route that I've gone and, and if progressive is the label under which I'm doing that, then, then that's where I am. Fantastic. We tend to have a view of faiths other than our own as being sort of monolithic, homogenous, but of course... There's, there's far greater diversity than that. So can you speak to us a little bit about the stream of progressive thought or practice within each of your own traditions? Matthew. Good one. You're going to have to nominate, I think. As you said, Lucas, it's a diverse tent, the old Christian thing. I had to jot down some notes. Matt's tweeting um, us a question right exactly. now. Exactly. I've got a ripper for me. <laughs> Broadly, the, the progressive movement is one that welcomes critical uh, thinking, which not every aspect of the Christian church does, encourages that, encourages diversity, it encourages embracing of difference, and it's issues and action-based. It's about peace and justice and environmental sustainability, in a nutshell. The American progressive Christianity stream, which is a little bit more formalised than it is here in Australia and has a little bit more momentum and gravitas, um, it's more mainly because it's a bit more sizeable. Uh, they just wrote down eight ripper little points to summarise the sort of stream of the progressive movement and, and I resonate well with it and I'll give it to you. I couldn't come up with a more succinct than their little eight points. One, believe that following the path and teachings of Jesus can lead to an awareness and experience of the sacred and oneness and unity of all life. Two, affirm that the teachings of Jesus provide but one of many ways to experience the sacred and oneness of life. Three, seek community that is inclusive of all people, conventional Christians and questioning sceptics, believers and agnostics, women and men, those of all sexual orientation and gender identities and those of all classes and abilities. Four, know that the way we behave towards one another is the fullest expression of what we believe. Five, find grace in the search for understanding and believe there is more value in questioning than in absolutes. Strive for peace and justice among all people. Strive to protect and restore the integrity of our earth. And finally, commit a part to a path of lifelong learning, compassion and selfless love. So that's the strand. You'll notice too that none of those are really that new. I heard an interview with someone really recently where they said, oh, this is my progressive theology. And the person went, so what, 5th century Christian Celtic theology? You know, <laughs> connection with nature and all women, are, women and men are equal and all life's connected. And so in some ways, the progressive movement is a recovery of, of what's always been, I think. So for us in Judaism, the, the progressive movement started out... Um, as in, in the 19th century, when actually probably 18th century, after the French Revolution, when France basically said, you can, you can be whatever religion you are as long as you are a citizen dedicated to the country. And so it was the first time that Jews who had been going through the Dark Ages, going through all of this, this, this history of anti-Semitism had, had all of a sudden been welcomed and, and, and allowed to participate, participate equally with other citizens. And so it was the first time they were actually exposed to something other than their Jewish ways and their Jewish communities. And um, so it was pretty amazing. And, and I think from that, 
came a, the, the birth of the Enlightenment, and then there's a Jewish version of the Haskalah, the Jewish Enlightenment, where Jews started thinking, questioning, curiosity, all these, all these um, ideas that you, go, you two are talking about. Same thing, they started asking, they started exploring, they said, well, why does it always have to be this way? Why is it only what this person says? Why do, a lot of people don't mm. understand this language, why can't we start speaking in the language, the vernacular, the language of the country? Why, um, why do men and women have to sit separately? Why can't we all sit together? And so they started making some changes like that. Um, and ironically, you know, you say the Celtics, they've always been a lot around there. Um, the, the term orthodoxy in Judaism didn't emerge until after the reformers called themselves reformers. It was actually a reaction to um, these reforms that were happening. And so they've started making the, these changes. They started making changes to the dietary laws. They started saying, well, why do we have to keep kosher in, in this way? So maybe it was it was relevant for a time in which it was written, but, um, but not for our time now. And, um, and so there started becoming a group of people called the Reformers, and they started a reform movement. They started a reform rabbinical college, so they started uh, ordaining leaders to, to teach and to make Judaism accessible um, in this way. And they started bringing in music, whereas if you go to a traditional Orthodox synagogue, you won't hear musical instrumentation. I won't go into why, but, um, but they, uh, and so we started bringing uh, musical instruments back into the services, and so uh, to beautify high culture and so forth. So those were some of the early changes that happened. Um, there was a group that broke off um, when one of the, the first um, ordaining rabbinical classes had what was the famous treif banquet. Treif means unkosher food, where you had pork and prawns with cream sauce, and, and they're like, okay, you have gone a step too far now. And, um, and so that group broke away and called them, so they became a what's now called the conservative movement, which isn't as conservative as the orthodox. So we have kind of three main streams, um, which is now coming to Australia. It's coming later to Australia. Um, so there's the, 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 the reform, the conservative, and the orthodox. But what's interesting is that in Australia, they changed their name. They didn't like the, the way that the, um, the reformers in Germany moved to America. And, um, and so they thought they were, they were a bit too far to the left. So they called themselves progressive, but not, were not as, as reform as those Americans. And um, ironically, lots of American rabbis come here. But, um, but needless to say, they were, they, were, they, were, they were trying to still figure out a way to maintain our culture and, and traditions and interact authentically with the, the modern world. So that's, that's what we started to do. And, and well, I'll talk more about the rights of other people as we move on. Yeah, well, it strikes me that, and, and each of your personal stories involved a sense of, in, in movement towards a progressive understanding, involved the, the rubbing up against life and the living of life. So seeing my friend go through um, the, the ritual of their Jewish faith, getting married, falling in love with someone from outside of the faith tradition. So when faith engages with life <laughs> in, a, in a real way, that's partly what opens us up, and that's happened in a, in a sense for the tradition as well. Um, how would you respond to that? What does the progressive stream look like within, within the Islamic faith? I think if you, if you ask a progressive Muslim, they would say that the progressives is, isn't quite like a sect or a, um, a, a new theology that we're trying to put forward. Uh, primarily, it's about returning to the use of independent reasoning and ijtihad and being able to liberate ourselves a little bit from the uh, rigid 
um, uh, approaches of some of the uh, scholars of the earlier centuries um, that came before us. So um, I think there's a there's a clear reluctance to say, oh, we're reformists, or we, we think that we should start a, a new a new direction that's um, that that kind of differentiates ourselves uh, from 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 others in a labeled way, it's kind of saying actually, I'm not a Sunni or a Shia or any of that. I'm rejecting this idea that there is a scholastic method or some sort of uh, logical reasoning that can define my Islam, that I have to follow a particular scholar. I'm just simply a Muslim. I can pick up the Quran, I can look at it, I can read it, I can engage with it, I can pray directly to my God and I can find my salvation through that. So there's, there's that kind of emergence of that independent reasoning and as, as I think maybe perhaps as uh, education rises in the Muslim world and people are, are exposed to more varying uh, perceptions and, and interpretations and translations of the Quran, they are capable of doing that. So, you know, 100 years ago, literary, literacy rates were much lower and people didn't have the opportunity to engage directly with their religious texts, so they believed what their local imam told them. But today you can go and you can access 100 different translations and you can see by looking at the way different translators translate them, that there are different ways of understanding Quran, the Islam and the Quran, and that kind of frees you to say, well, how do I want to understand it? And I think the progressives, um, the progressive Muslims are really kind of riding that wave, and, and there are lots of scholars and very respected individuals who are supporting that and who, who are writing books and engaging um, in theology and challenging some of the more traditional interpretations, and, and we're looking at exploring that. Yeah, so I want to go further into this concept of is this a, a break with tradition or is this actually reclaiming something from our heritage? So in general there seems to be a decline uh, in the vitality of religious institution in Australia uh, and a rise in more free form expression of spirituality. So we've all heard the, the term spiritual but not religious. Uh, so this can be critiqued as individualistic or consumeristic, but perhaps, Lee, perhaps there's rightly an instinct to preserve uh, within institution which ought to be contested. So uh, picking up on that theme of is this a break with tradition or is this a, a recovery of, of, of an ancient vitality, how does the progressive stream or approach release and engage the vitality of the spirituality within your tradition? Do you see, it, do you see any discontinuity with your tradition? Start with you, um, I think it's a return to the original approach. Um, even if you look at the history of Islam and the, if, when it first emerged, the first theor th theoreticians around Islamic um, theology and philosophy were the Mutazila, who were very rationalist and reason, and you know would, would look at the Quran and, and say, um, "We need to use our intelligence and our reason to understand this." Um, after that, there were um, a number of different schools of thought that emerged that prioritized uh, the hadith and the sunnah, which are the sayings of the prophet, and then they canonized them into, a, into, into many different systems of law. So this idea that there's a sharia, like there's this one set of law in Islam, doesn't ex it's not real. In fact, there's lots of different laws depending on which scholars you follow, and if you don't like this person's uh, sharia, you can go and follow someone else's sharia. And in fact, people leave one school of thought so that they can do... Uh, something and just go to another school of thought because that's that Sharia. Um, so I think that this idea that your life can be dictated to the minute 
by a religion and a theology is, uh, is something that emerged over time. And by kind of saying, actually, there is no dictation by God. There is no, you know, guide, like rule book that says exactly how long your shorts should be or how long your, sh your beard should be. This is more um, about applying reason and going back to the basics of goodness. I think that's the tradition of Islam in a way. And by throwing out a lot of the layers and layers of crust that's gotten over it over the years, we can kind of maybe um, expose the truth in it a little bit more. Matt and I have often argued about uh, beard length related uh, <laughs> statutes within, within our faith. Rabbi Olson. Um, I, I, I was about to say I suffer from severe case of beard envy. But um, <laughs> Freud had his kind of envy, I have a different kind. But um, in terms of, uh, I, I thought you were going one way with the question and then it ended with another as a spin to it. Um, but I, I will say that our tradition in some ways, we have made a break in that there's a, there's a process, there's a halakha, means Jewish law in, in tradition, which developed over time. It wasn't written in our Torah, the first five books of the Bible, but it was a later development. So according to the Jewish tradition, there's the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, um, that is thought to have been given by God to Moses at Mount Sinai. From there, later rabbis looked at it and said, ah, there are 613 commandments that God gave us. Isn't that great? One of them is that you should um, rest on Shabbat. Fantastic. What does it mean to rest? So then, as intellectuals as we are, what does it mean to rest? I bet you we would all amongst us have like 10 different ideas at least to figure out what that means. So then they came down and they wrote down all different ways of what does it mean to rest and they connected a whole bunch of things. And this process over time developed into what is called halakha or Jewish law. And the further away we have gotten from the actual event of revelation, the Torah given at Mount Sinai, the more um, detailed the law is, so much so that it does say exactly how long your skirt needs to be, how many inches below the, the, the elbow, this, how much your hair should be covered. And I've just recently learned there's other law that says which, you know, in the morning you should put on your left foot first and then your right foot and then tie your other shoe. I didn't even know that. I just heard that recently from uh, another Orthodox rabbi that I know. But, um, but anyway, so the further you go, the, the, you know, you, the people are trying to hold on tight to, um, to, to, this, to the, what was considered the, the important event. Um, when I teach the difference between our three movements, I draw a diagram. Um, one is like a, like a sun, a circle with rays coming out. And I say that's a more traditional perspective. The circle is the event of revelation, and the further away we get from it, the further we are from actually knowing the truth with a capital T. What is truth? Yeah. So, um, so, so that's one thing. In the conservative movement, they believe in what's called continual revelation. So you've got your circle, and then you've got a straight line. And in every generation, God continues to reveal to us what it is that our generation um, is to is to understand and to know for our generation. The progressive movement has progressive revelation. Our little ball, right, is the, is the Sinai. And as we as we age and as we mature as as humanity, um, we actually have a better understanding of what it was that God actually meant at the beginning. And so, um, so they're very different understandings and ways of relating to it. And yet, we all still come back to that ball. You know, we all still have the same holidays. We're on the same cycle, and so forth. 
And it's interesting, whereas you went with your husband and said, how is it that I'm marrying outside my faith? Is that really bad? And, and questioned that. When I was 16 and I told my parents I only wanted to marry a Jewish man, they looked at me and said, why limit yourself? <laughs> and so, again, I, I, you know, I come from very hippie California. So, um, so, but, but even within our own tradition, in the reform movement, in the progressive movement, we've also had a turn back to tradition, if you will, but in a different way. So for example, you see that I'm wearing a kippah. It's not just for show. I actually do wear it most of the time. And, um, you know, and that's traditionally worn by Jewish men, not by Jewish women. And, um, and I wear it for my own reasons and, and not personally, not because I believe that God's always above me, but for me, it's a matter of my, my uniform. Just like at school, you have your kids' uniforms, you know that you're connected with that school. For me, it's my tribe, despite the fact that I get more antagonism from other Jews than anybody else for wearing, <laughs> what is wrong with you? I was once called the child of the devil by an Israeli bus driver. Um, <laughs> Uh, but anyway, that's a whole other story. But the, and, and also, even within my own movement, I've also chosen to take on a lot more traditional behaviors as a progressive Jew, not because I have to, because God told me I must, but because I choose to, because it makes more sense for me to get back to what I believe personally and individually was the ultimate intent of, of, of our Jewish teachings. So it's an interesting thing, the, the push and pull in terms of our relationship with Judaism. And I didn't at, at all answer your question nor do I think you did, about the, about the spirituality. I will just say one thing about the sp spiritual but not religious because that is becoming more and more a case. And I find that there is an incredible divide around the world, or at least around the Western world, I should say, um, that the people are becoming either more religious, more conservative, holding on to it, or uh, you know, throwing the baby out with bathwater, you know, seeing nothing in between. And so, um, so I find a lot of Jews go to Buddhism, a lot of Jews become jubus, you know, have you heard that term, jubus? Uh, there's 80% of people convert to Buddhism are Jewish actually so yeah so because they don't think that it actually the spiritual element exists within our own tradition because um, because it has become so rigid you do this because you say so without enough opportunity to actually explore the deeper meaning you do without the, the knowledge but in our movement my critique within my own movement is that it was so intellectualized that we're all up here and we're not about here and and so and so now there's another movement starting called Jewish renewal that's um, that's trying to renew the the spiritual life within Judaism. Mm, so it's a, it's a journey of mutual liberation, of, of, of you as an individual being liberated by reclaiming uh, elements of the faith, but also the practice of the faith itself being liberated. Fantastic. Uh, can I just say, you can, can you just, everything that, that Rabbi Allison said, just put Muslim instead of Jew and just pretend I said that. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. And when I'll do the same. Yeah, I didn't, re didn't realise that was an option. So... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, you can just tick uh, for one box above the line. Just means all exactly. of that. That's great. When uh, when we publish the audio of this, we'll just sort of we'll edit it up. So. Copy paste. Yeah. Just so, digitise her voice into a male version. Yeah. <laughs> so what about for you, Matt? Do you see any discontinuity with, yeah. the, with the heritage? Uh, it's been well articulated. I certainly see a both end. I, I certainly see the progressive movement is actually trying to. It's radical, but the, I love that radical. The Latin word for radical comes from root for radish and it's a root vegetable and actually radical is actually to get back to the root so it's actually a calling back to the core and that's what the progressive movement essentially is trying to do and I think it's been well reflected by what some people call a minor chord of the Christian tradition and that's the mystical tradition which has always been there in different manifestations and forms throughout different eras of time 
And there's always been this voice that has sort of been in touch with the oneness of all creation. With that, and it's almost been a critiquing voice to the church. It's not been front and centre. It's not been in the middle. But it's been present and it's actually been the voice that wants to be a prophetic voice of calling it a when he actually getting stale and hardened. It's a natural drive of any institution is to harden it on itself, to define and to make the rules and to define what's in and what's out. And we actually need this this radical self-critiquing element. It's just built into any system. And it's built into our political system. We have polars, we have a progressive and a conservative because we recognise that we need to live in healthy tension with the past and with moving forward. And that actually either voice left to its own devices is unhelpful. So for mine, the progressive voice is that which calls us back to the middle, but sometimes means actually calling us away from what the middle's trying to do. Marriage equality is a great example of that. Um, where actually the progressive voice needs to call out, this is not right and this is not fair, to step away from the loud voice, to call us back to the centre. And that's not back to the fringes, that's back to the centre, that all are one. Um, but finally, I, I mean, the idea of being of the tradition, you say that word and it sounds like go backwards or go back to the traditions, go back, back in time. But the Christian tradition and all of these traditions are such vital traditions. To be of the tradition of Jesus meant to take that wisdom of, of what had gone before, the ancient wisdom that had been honed over centuries, to look around at the modern-day circumstances and what life was throwing at you, to apply discernment to whatever you thought was of God and truth, and to, to live it out. That was what it meant to be of the tradition. The tradition didn't mean to just stay to things and do things the same way. The tradition meant to be engaged in a wrestle with faith, life, experience, and, and God. So it wasn't about the application of a past pattern, but the engagement with a new context. That's it, mm. yeah. Right, okay. We're going to do uh, rock, paper, scissors now just to work out who's actually correct. Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> but I do want to ask you about uh, plurality. So how do we see truth in other traditions? So most outsiders would assume the conventional interpretation or practice of uh, your faiths would make a claim about its superiority in regards to others that you would see yourselves as, if not sole possessors of the truth, perhaps majority shareholders. <laughs> so how, how do you view other religions and, and is there room for truth in each other's stories? I'll go first because we are the superior tradition. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I mean, it's a no-brainer, really. And, I mean, I love, I love the whole um, a Jew, a Christian and a Muslim walked into a bar, had a drink, shared conversation... It's not a joke, it's just what happens when you're not an ass. <laughs> and it's a no-brainer to engage in being a human being. And for me, I love who was the chief rabbi in the, in the UK, was Jonathan Sachs, did this beautiful interview, and he, so he's the advisor to the, the Prime Minister in the UK, and would say, well, d we, we now know that DNA affirms that there is a unity, and out of that unity springs complete diversity. So he would say, as a Jew, we actually need diverse religions. How could we ever think that the diversity of life and creation would have but one way of exploring this, this oneness, but yet diverse creation? I just love that take, that it's a no-brainer that we would need different ways, different flavours, different takes. For me, uh, religious traditions are just naming systems. And they're the maps of the territory, but they're not the territory. So it should be obvious that we need different ways. It should be affirming when we see crossover and truth. That's a wonderful way to hone our religious traditions, to be in conversation. And when we're in conversation, something happens, and that is you can't protect your patch 
you have to enter in with curiosity and openness and see what emerges in the middle. So for me, plurality is a key, a no-brainer and a must. In fact, this Sunday is Pluralism Sunday in the States, started by progressive Christianity. So yeah, get on board it. I'm sure you've all got pluralism parties. Uh, <laughs> so invite your friends, make sure they're diverse. If it's too monocultural, it doesn't pass. Um, but there you go. Fantastic. Thank you. I want to come to your house this Sunday. <laughs> yeah. um, so, uh, where do I go from here? Uh, what's an interesting thing, I, I ran this course uh, last year called Truth versus Torah. Is there, you know, what's the difference? And, and, and is there, and it was a great philosophical conversation, is there such thing as the ultimate truth? What about my truth is different from your truth? You know, another person's um, freedom fighter is another person's terrorist. You know, what's, what's truth? How do, you, how do you define that? And so um, people will often say to the Jews, you know, you, you think you're the chosen people. Doesn't that mean you think you're better than us? And um, some people, would, some Jews would say, obviously. And, um, but uh, many of us would, uh, would say that actually we're chosen to live our life in this way, according to this path, and Muslims are chosen to lead their lives in this way, according to their path, and Christians according to theirs. And everyone is going to find their path, just like every person. You know, any of you who have children, send your kids to different schools, maybe, because you're different type of learners. You know, they're different type of spiritual learners as well, and spiritual journeyers. And, and you know, some people like things exactly, really, I mean, as I would go insane if I were kept and I had to do this at this time and that and that time. But other people, if you don't do that, they would go insane too, that they truly need that structure that for some people is limiting and closing for other people it actually allows them to feel more free and more safe in this world so for me to judge a a more religious person for being you know too limiting then you know it's the same thing as them judging us for thinking we're not truly jews or truly whoever we are as we're judged in our own faiths i'm sure um, so, so I, so that's that's my belief. It's just you know, I mean, and the same thing when you deal with the issue of abortion. Can I go that controversial yet? Right? And and you look at the fact that you know, if someone believes that a life is a life that begins at conception, I would you know, I would be out there protesting too. Don't kill people. I wouldn't be blowing up abortion institutions because that's hypocritical. But um, you know, but you you know, if you believe that, then you're going to fight for that. But if you don't believe that, then you're going to do it differently but when their truth infringes upon my choice that's that's where we have conflict so are they right can i say that they're right or wrong no i can't because who is to say who literally who is to say and and i don't think as human beings any of us in any faith tradition should be arrogant enough to think that we know best of course, I say that because I know best. But, um, but you know, but at the same time, that's 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 my that's again that's my my belief. And other people that have a, a, a different, more traditional belief, they're going to argue very differently because that's how they believe. And because my my progressive values is uh, is what's the right word? Is something with plurality is is ingrained or you know they're one in the same. I mean, isn't progressive plural? Isn't it the same thing? In fact, in our movement, we're debating. We're called. Um, the Union for Progressive Judaism, and we've been having this internal debate to call it the Union for Pluralist Judaism. We don't have to change any of the logos. Um, but as it long really, as the acronym yeah, survives. Yeah, right, there yeah. you go. But it, you know, it's, it's, it really is the same thing, so that's what I mean. Thanks, Rabbi. That's great. In, in the Quran, it says that, it's, there's a verse that says, uh, we created you in nations and tribes so that you may um, know each other and strive for righteousness. So um, I think that it is 
in that sense, by design, that we're different. There's another verse that says, if God had wished, he would have created you all believers, you know, in, in, of, of, of one religion. And I think that we have to see the plurality um, as a strength and that we can learn from each other and strive from each other and actually maybe be able to become closer to the truth if we engage with other religions rather than be really insular and just look at our books and our scholars and think only about our religion and what our truth is. So um, I think within Islam there's a strong tradition of pluralism and, and the strong uh, sense within the Quran that the, the message of the Quran is one that is a, rep a repetition of the messages that have come before it. It doesn't claim to be a new religion, it claims to be a continuation of all the other religions that came before it. And so as Muslims you really, you have to believe in Christianity and Judaism and, and actually a limitless number of religions because it doesn't say which religions in particular were the ones that came before or not. It just says that God sent many prophets and many messengers to all the people um, and, and that Islam is just a continuation of that. I just want to say there's, there's one um, Jewish text that talks about f for when we believe the Messiah will come and there's a messianic age that it talks about each person praying to his, because they were sexist back then, but um, his... Just his, back then. Just, just back then. Yeah. And now it's all, all everything's fixed up. So, um, but playing to, paying to um, his God walking into the same temple, the same holy space, but not saying that they all have to adopt our God, or our, first of all, there's only one, but also, but we all have different names, just like as a parent, you know, as, as you have different nicknames by different people, that you're the same person if you have different nicknames. So it's the same thing, we all access God in our different ways, as we have different relationships with our parents, but as all the religions not having to change to be like the other, but to be authentically who they are and walk into the same holy space. Wonderful. Hold on to that mic, because you can go next on the next one. I'm going to ask you one more question before we go off to a uh, to a short break and, and leg stretch, and it is just a small little one. We've talked a little. We've talked so far uh, largely about the tradition and our experience of the tradition that we've come from. Let's ask the big question that that, that Matt named at the very beginning of, uh, of of who is God. So, from your perspective, what are uh, some of the some of the analogies you would use or the metaphor that you would use? Who who or what? are you talking about when you're talking about God? Excellent. Glad I'm going first. Yeah. <laughs> um, so is Reem and Matt. They're very glad too. <laughs> so um, I actually ran this retreat called Everything You Wanted to Ask About God But Were Afraid to Know, as opposed to Everything You Wanted to Know About God But Were Afraid to Ask. Uh, just switch it around a bit. Um, Maimonides, famous Jewish 12th century philosopher, he said that God, you can only understand or describe God by what God is not. It's like carving out the negative space, Well, so, which I, I, I like that one a lot because, who, again, who are we to access this? There's another beautiful story, um, I don't know if you've heard this one, about three blind men and an elephant, you know this, right? So um, I don't even know what, where that comes from, that story of the three blind, is it Sufi? Is it? Okay. Um, so, thank you. Anyway, so three blind men and the elephant, right? So for those of you that don't know it, they're all getting a different part of the elephant. They're saying, what is this? I do my own version of it. Oh, well, this is clearly a toilet brush. I'm sure the Sufi doesn't say it's a toilet brush. So it's a toilet brush over here. What are you talking about? It's a tree trunk. I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. I got a hose over here. And they're all grasping these different things. And, and, and it's just like all of us who are blind and we all have one aspect of God. 
And um, so I really don't think that we really have a clue, to be quite honest, of what God is. Um, 20th century philosophers branched out, and, and Herman Cohen talked about God as, as a, the God concept, as the ultimate ideal um, in, in thought, that God's the, I don't know, it's like Jungian collective unconsciousness, but the collective thoughtliness, um, if that's a word. But, you know, so, so God is, is the thinking. God is the, there's another concept, it, it comes from the Psalms, actually, where God's your... I like to say Jiminy Cricket, but your conscience, God's speaking to you from within, right? Science can't explain that. We accept uh, conscience, but we, a lot of people reject God, but they know they have a conscience. They know what right and wrong is. Where does that sense come from? Mm. So um, some, people, some people say that, you know, God is in everything, right? In nature, in, in human beings, in human interaction. Uh, Martin Buber, 20th century philosopher, also talked about God as I-thou moments, that you could only experience God in relationship, in relationship to people, but also in relationship, uh, like in the ocean, you know, you can just be, have this moment of awe. Uh, uh, sorry, I have all the theologians in my head. Yeah. But well, I was going to, I was, I was going to ask, what is it, for Rabbi Allison, as you oh, as you struggle with traffic on your way over here, as uh, uh, who who or what is it for you? So my concept of God has has developed over time. And as you, you were you talking about the wrestling, which one of you two is talking about the, the wrestling? So the word Israel, Israel means one who wrestles with God. So um, I fully embrace and 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 personify the wrestling with God, um, because for a long time, again, not having religious parents, God was never mentioned. So I never developed a God consciousness. I think at one stage, God was Snoopy land. But, um, but that was when I was little, I moved past that. But um, I did, for me, I, I, I studied psychology, that's when I studied at university, and, and literature and language, but, but I, I, I loved emotion. I'm a very emotionally intense person. In fact, I thought I was a betazoid. For any of you Star Trek fans out there, is a, a person who feels uh, things, uh, senses people. But, but it, was, it was one of those things. So I thought that God was like the ever, ever-flowing vessel of emotions that you just, like, even, what did they say? There's, there's no atheists in foxholes. Have you heard yeah, that expression, right, from the for Second World War, you know, or First World War, that, you know, when, when things are really horrible, just in case there's a God, help, you know? Or, or, but also when things are really amazing and you just, you have so much gratitude, you're literally overflowing with gratitude. Um, Thank you, universe, if people don't want to use it. So for me, I think that God is the, the overflow <laughs> space for that. Um, I, don't, I don't believe in a God that makes things happen, and yet I truly believe that everything happens for a reason. Go figure. There's, there's, um, I actually debated it this week in our Shabbat or Sabbath services. There's an expression in the Mishnah that says, um, everything is foreseen, yet free will is given. If that's not the ultimate paradox from the first century, but I love it and I and I believe that that I believe that God, in a sense, do I believe that there's a creator? Some somehow, I think God is the big question mark, you know, the unanswerable thing. Okay, so even if you believe in in it, for those of us that believe in evolution, we still want to go. Where did that first blast come from? What where did that come from? You can, no one can answer that. Why does a sperm and an egg make a baby? You know, science can tell us how it happens it can't tell us why and so for me god is that is that is that unanswerable question great response <laughs> rain what would your response be to that question that's not fair matt's already workshopped it this one so <laughs> 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 um well i'll tell you what god is not yeah. to me uh he's not an accountant um in the muslim tradition god is always 
talk to us as someone who is watching everything that you do and, and you get, you know, like 60 good points if you do this and 100 bad points if you do that and, you know, and it's very mathematical, <laughs> but um, it's also um, very tiring and, and I think that um, I, I, don't, I don't see God that way and I don't see God as, as a punisher or as a, or even really as something that's uh, separate from me or you. Um, in, in Islam, there's a really strong emphasis on the oneness of everything and that God is everything. If you ask me what is God, I would say everything. God is everything. God is in me, in you, in the table, in the plan. It is everything uh, that is around us, it is, that has been here before and that will be, you know, in the stars, in the sky, in the frog, everything. That's... You can, nothing can exist without God, and, and, you know, God just encompasses it all, and it has a consciousness. It's not a he, it's not a separate being. It's, it's what, what makes everything tick like clockwork. That is what God is. That's why it's with you wherever you go, in your thoughts, in your heart. And when you see beautiful things like mountains and oceans, and you see God in it because you're seeing the clockwork ticking. You're seeing the awesomeness of what is God, and you have that sensation of a closeness and being part of something because you are also part of that clockwork that's ticking. So that's God. Wonderful, wonderful. So, Matt, who, who or what is God? How would yeah. you describe God? How did I end up on the butt end of this question? Yeah. Just pulling up the reins to this question. <laughs> if only I'd taken notes when I workshopped it all those years ago. I forgot, had the answer then and let it slip. Uh, I don't know. And thankfully, my progressive space has enabled that to be okay, um, affirming that mystery is there to be honoured rather than claimed and known. Um, if I had to try and put words to it at this point, and then hopefully if you ask me down the track, it's different, because I'd like to think my sense and understanding of God will change and emerge. But if you were to ask me now, I'd say, well, it's, it's the depth in us and in the universe that it's... I sort of see God as, as DNA. I sort of see God as, as the, the energy that undergirds all of life, that, that's sort of tugging it forward. 13.8 billion years of evolution that just continues to move in a direction of depth, complexity and unity. For me, there's that sense that there's not this God with a plan and we're just the map's being laid out, but actually of this evolving energy that just wants to create and unfold. And bizarrely, through conscious beings like us, that we can actually work with, we can collude with that energy or we can actually work against it. But fascinatingly, even if we don't really want to align too much or collude too much with the force of the universe, it just seems to keep creating through us. And actually, I think humanity continues to become more empathic and understanding and loving, and that may be contested by some people here. But my sense is, as a people, even despite our rejection of a trajectory that might be peaceful and loving, there just seems to be, in spite of us, this movement forward towards greater depth, complexity and love. So that's perhaps best experienced my life in love. The Christian scripture I go to more than any others is when we live in love, we live in God. That actually it's such a simple, bizarrely succinct phrase. But love seems to be the, the portal in which I'm most open and vulnerable and therefore I can therefore collude with that energy. So, and bizarrely, when someone shares their pain or suffering and I am present to it, I feel that connection that Buber talked about, the I-thou, that even in 
pain and suffering, I feel connected, that there's something in me that wants to stay with, be present to, to walk towards crap. <laughs> that actually God, that actually there's this depth in us that's speaking to each other in both joy and in, in pain. There's, there's depth. So Paul Tillich, a, a Christian theologian, talked about God not as a being but of the ground of being and quotes a, a scripture phrase that's, in God we live and move and have our being. And if that's the case, if God is the ground of being and not a father figure, not a male dominant power, all the images the Christian tradition has really overplayed and robbed the beautiful Hebrew tradition of all the beautiful images they handed us and we sort of just went, we'll just take one, thanks. We'll just take that male power figure and the one that's removed from us in the sky. And yet, if the ground of being is God, then someone who says, I can't believe there's a God because of all the pain and suffering and wars in this world. And someone else says, how can you not believe in a God? Look at the beauty and the joy and the amazing. You know, surely there's a God. If God is the ground of being, then both those people speaking from a place of depth are actually speaking from that same ground, despite the fact they're in disagreement on the surface, that they're on opposing viewpoints, but actually they're coming from a shared unity, the depth, the ground of being. So for me, God is depth. Yeah. Oh, wow, wow. clap. <laughs> wow, you. fantastic. Uh, so I want to cover off a few more, I guess, uh, nuts and bolts kind of issues. So uh, one of which would be scripture and sacred text from a progressive kind of viewpoint within a, within a progressive framework. Um, how is scripture and sacred text viewed and used. And I think you've touched on this a little bit in some of your answers so far. Um, but, yeah, in general, how, how would be your response? Reem, would you like to start us off? No? Okay, that's fine. <laughs> would you like to nominate one of the other panellists? There you go, Matt. <laughs> well, pretty basically, I see it as a human product. I see it as written by cultures of people that were wrestling with truth, with their ancient wisdom and with their sense of God and truth. Um, but, but a human product, nonetheless. But it's, it's really important to talk scripture because for, for a lot of Christians, if you don't talk that, you actually can't talk any other issue because marriage equality, um, you, you name a contentious thing and it'll come back to, to scripture. So we actually would love to have the conversation about abortion, let's talk the nitty gritty and this, that, the other, let's hear stories. But if you can't talk scripture, you actually can't get into the conversation, which is, which is frustrating. From a Christian point of view, we have four gospels that all contradict each other. We, we, have a, 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 we have a whole basis, a library that have contradictions and different nuance and focus. It is the best thing ever. We're just sitting on a gold mine. We're sitting on four stories of Jesus that have different slants and different focuses. And, and the writer wants to change the angle to better suit his audience and kick out this bit. And there's, you know, two guys on the cross in one gospel that are teeing into Jesus. And the next one, one of them is on Jesus' side and goes with him to the kingdom. And I mean, they're all there. And a friend of mine who's a minister said, well, the only way to avoid fundamentalism is to get people to read their Bible. <laughs> so if you really read the thing, there's all sorts of... And contradictions aren't a threat to me because they're trying to write into their audience at their time and they're grappling with the best wisdom and tools they had available. That's not a threat. So for me, I just love what the tradition does and that is to, to take and grapple and wrestle and, and, and move forward. Fantastic. Reem, are you ready yet? Okay. Rabbi, I'll listen to you. <laughs> sure. Um, so we're called the people of the book. So books are pretty important to us. 
And, um, and so, you know, you ask the question, what's the difference between spiritual and religious, or what do you mean by that? And I think a lot of that has to do with actual, the, the scriptures. I think that, you know, you can have your own individual relationship with God and spirituality on your own that's not connected with any faith-based tradition. I think what makes it religious is it's, it, there's a spiritual element to any religion, but I think so much of it is in our teachings that come from our books. So I think to say, to go outside of our books, I think is 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 outside of our of our religion. So we are we are very much based within the within our our books. However, the, like you, the way we see our books is different. So whereas our our more conservative colleagues look at the books as as God given, and every book that's come from then, therefore God preordained and knew that all those 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 authors were going to write this exactly the way God wanted to write it. Um, we don't see it that way. We see the historical evolution of writing and of books and of of, of society and humanity in influencing what the writings say. So, so we take all of the writings into account. And, and as a, a progressive movement, we are, we're bound by not halakha, Jewish law, but by um, individual informed choice. That's our, that's our motto, individual informed choice. We have to learn, we have to study what all of our texts have said, look at our society, learn from other traditions and cultures, and then figure out what's right for us as, as individuals. Difficult to create any form of solidarity because we're all individuals, not me. But, um, but the, uh, thanks, you guys know the <laughs> reference. Um, but the but but I so the books are are very very important. But they're not they're not um, we see them rather as guidelines, not law, and that makes a big difference. And so we use it to to inform us. But I, I love your quote about the the fundamentalism, and I think that I think that it is true. In order to engage with the fundamentalists in any religion, we actually have to know our stuff too. And and I had a, a professor once say to me, "Why is the only authentic interpretation in your mind?" She said to me when I was a young rabbinic student. Young, um, that uh, she says, why is it that the only authentic interpretation is that written in black and white hundreds or thousands of years ago? And I thought, oh, you have a good point there. You know, why is it that their stories are any more val uh, valid than my stories right now? And so I think that as long as our interpretations and our teachings come from an authentic in interaction with, um, with our text, with our tradition, with our understanding of our world and our sense of, of God's spirituality, whatever, then that's, that, that's true to what it is. But I think if you do, if remove the scripture completely, then you remove the religious completely. You're ready now, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm ready now. Thank so you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's No, it's a difficult one to answer because I think that progressive Muslims are still grappling with that, mm -hmm. and I think I'm still grappling with that. So what I'll do is I'll I'll explain why I'm grappling with it, right. um, right. because. Uh, uh, and I'll explain a little bit of the basics for people who don't know. Uh, Muslims believe that the Quran is the word of God that, that was revealed to the Prophet Muhammad. Um, and uh, that is our holy book. Um, it's, a, it's not a very long book. There's only one of it. And it was reve revealed and then memorized by the people that lived with the Prophet Muhammad and written on little bits of pieces of paper and then put together and compiled into a book um, by, the, by the third caliph, by Uthman, after, so about um, a few years after the death of the Prophet. So it wasn't actually compiled during his time, but it, was put to, but it was orally memorized. And they had a very strong oral tradition, so you can be quite confident in the oral memorization of the Quran. 
the second so scripture that we have, which I say scripture and I kind of stumble saying it because I don't think of it really as a scripture, but it has in a way become canonized as a scripture, is the hadith and the sunnah, which are the sayings and doings of the Prophet Muhammad. Um, and these kind of emerged uh, 200, 300 years after the Prophet and, uh, and as the different schools of thought were um, kind of coming about and developing their sharia and they were looking to try to understand what Islam says about X or what Islam says about Y. And the Quran is it's a short book, it's not that long and it doesn't provide all of the answers. So they went to look at what the Prophet had done and that became in itself, the tradition of the Prophet became um, uh, God's law, God's will. Now the reason why I have a problem with this is because the Prophet Muhammad was just a man and the, the, the Quran is clear about that, that he was just a man and that he made mistakes, you know. And so you can't then say uh, a fallible man is, you know, and then also the, the fallible man's actions that were transmitted by like five or six men in a row have suddenly become our source of all inspiration and how we should do everything. And that's something that happened 1,400 years ago. For me, it's, it's ludicrous. So I, I think that when it comes to the hadith and the sunnah and the sayings of the prophet, I approach them with a lot of skepticism. I think that there's a lot of value in some of them, um, but I think that the way that they have been used to make Sharia law and to dictate things that are beyond the scope of faith and religion is, uh, has driven people away from the true understanding of Islam. Um, but when it comes to the Quran, it's harder for me to, to know. And, and, I, and I, I mean, I think, I feel like it's divinely inspired. Um, I feel like the Prophet Muhammad had, a, had, had an encounter with God, and, and this scripture was the result of that encounter. Um, but whether it is the, I don't, the verbatim word of God, I question because I don't think God speaks a language. So I think that this is the manifestation of Muhammad's encounter with God in a human language, and, you know, so it's beyond description, I imagine, you know, having an encounter with God, beyond human language, but uh, it's, you know, it's emerged this way. Therefore, you can look at it and you, you read it in context and you try to find the principle behind it, the analogies in it. There are a lot of analogies and the Quran introduces itself as a book of analogies, but um, yeah, I'll, I'll, anyway... Sorry, long-winded answer. But it's a very difficult question because the Quran and the Hadith are so important to Muslims and it's one of their kind of defining factors that the Quran is the word of God and it's never been changed and it's absolutely right and you can live your life by it. And, you know, and I think that we need to, it's very difficult to unravel that with Muslims. Mm. And thank you for beginning that with uh, the, the wrestle of, uh, I'm still figuring this out, I don't know. Um, because that picks up on uh, um, the idea that um, scripture is to be taken seriously, mm. not literally. Mm. And I think that's a really, that's a really powerful idea. Um, and can I add one thing really quickly? Yeah. Not only for me does scripture have contradictions, but it actually has a development. So I love that early tradition would say there's no male or female, Jew or Greek, slave or free, all are one in Christ. But as the scriptures develop, we get a I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. The scriptures say a woman must be silent. Mm -hmm. And that's lovely. That's the best. <laughs> not because I agree um. with it. <laughs> not because I agree with it, but it shows an evolution of an institution. Yeah. 
that at the time was responding to something and, and put something in place, it had evolved, it had changed. So it gives us the freedom to ask the question, well, what is the Spirit of Christ, what is the Word of God saying into these circumstances and into our midst now? And that's sort of what you guys are saying. To wrestle with it is then to then ask, well, how might God speak in you now? Mm. And, and, and um, to, join some, to, to join some other dots, Rabbi Ellison, you also talked about the only ability we have within language to describe God is to talk about what God is not, to talk about God in a, in a negative sense, infinite sort of, you know, uh, God is not finite, those kind of things. And that's that sense of wrestle that you're talking about as well, Reem, that, uh, that our language is not capable, we don't have the capacity to actually name and encapsulate God in a word, in, in, in this little capsule, they're, they're, um, they're insufficient vessels for describing the divine. Can I just say what's interesting is that the story of Babel, right, is the, is the story of where there were a group of people coming together and, and, and from trying to reach God, they, they, uh, they were dispersed or I would say diversified, right? They were diversified, they were pluralized, they were, and, and hence language, di diverse language came into being. So it's, it's interesting that from that story, you see different, different ways of communicating and immediately from there, different ways of, of, of reaching God. Mm. And you could, you could say that there was a New Testament echo of that in the Pentecost story, that, that the Spirit of God actually came and, and, uh, and created the ability to speak in different languages that was happening at the same time. So good. See the, see the dots being connected here, folks? This is great. <laughs> um, Reem, I I, I'm going to start the next question with you, uh, un unavoidably. And, and it picks up on uh, the, the, uh, the misstep that Matt nearly made, talking about the role of women within faith. Um, and I, I'm, I almost played my card. You almost played your card there. Yeah, that's right. And so I want to ask e each of you about uh, the role in the role of your in your tradition, the role of uh, open, inclusive, and affirming um, uh, the participation and leadership of women. Um, I want to I want to begin with you, Breen, because culturally in Australia at the moment there's uh, there's a conversation about uh, an Australian affirmation of Australian values on citizenship tests and one of the things that was put out there in the public was about do you respect the role of women and some people have interpreted that as is that a bit of a dig at Islam so how, how would you uh, how would you respond uh, to the to the progressive understanding within Islam of the role of women um. I think that the, the role of women in Islam is a really sad story because um, when we have so many strong women in Islam in the tradition of the Prophet Muhammad, at the life of the Prophet Muhammad, I mean his, his first wife that he married was 25 years older than him and his boss uh, and she asked him to marry her and and then he stayed married to her he didn't marry anyone else until after uh, she passed away um, and then his other wife Aisha led men into battle on the back of a camel and there was not no segregation in their mosque and there was a, it was a totally different type of under gender relations then um, and I think that you know, when Islam came, it kind of reinforced some of the rights that were there and, and gave them, gave all women rights to inherit, rights to property. Um, but I think from the history that I've read, within generations, those rights were just started to get clawed back. You know, the misogyny of the Arabian culture uh, didn't like the changes that came uh, with it. And, um, and women were restricted from the mosques and, uh, you know, aren't allowed to be imams, for example. And it's, there is nothing in the Quran that says that a woman can't have a, be a religious leader, and there's nothing in the hadith that says 
that a woman can't be a religious leader. Like a hadith is in the sayings of the Prophet. This is just something that men have arbitrarily decided for us, uh, and, uh, and then we're expected to just not challenge that. So we have a lot of work to do, but thankfully we have a lot of um, female Muslim leaders from our past that we can call to from the time of the Prophet Muhammad and say, well, hang on one second, how can the woman lead uh, men on, on, on camelback in war and not be able to lead them in prayer? Rabbi Allison. Um, so there's a midrash or a story that talks about the, the beginning of creation, or you have Adam, and then we know about Eve. But it says in the book of Genesis that, that Adam was created male and female. Zechar male and female. And so there's a Midrash, where story says, wait, I don't understand male and female, but then you have the story of Eve later on. And so there's a creation of a new character that's not in the, the Bible itself, but it's in our literature that says there's this, this woman, Lilith, who was created at the same, literally equal at the same time, not from Adam's rib, to be his helpmate, literally, because he was lonely and alone. He wanted someone to, to be his helpmate, but but rather they're created at the same time. And, um, and, and then later on in our stories and our traditions, this woman Lilith has turned into a demon and um, who was actually turned into the snake that got Eve to actually um, eat from the apple and disobey God and so you can't trust uh, you know a woman uh, unless she unless she comes from you and does what you say so but you know this so it's one of these things of course the feminist movement in the 60s picked that up and they started a whole movement around Lilith as being the first independent female. And so they're moving there. But you know, the same thing, it's, it's, it, though actually I find our religion has gone back, is, is the opposite. So you had more of a traditional woman listening to her man. And as, as time moves on, it, it's, it's, it's changed. But in, in our more traditional communities, you will find many, many women that do not feel degraded. They, they, they feel that they have autonomy in their realm and they're the mistress of the, of the, of the household and all those things. And the husband's the, 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 the master of the outside world and they're very content with, with those things. And I said, that's fantastic. What happens if you wanted to do something different? Well, I don't want to, I'm totally happy. And why is it that men can go to sit and have the best seats in the service or they can be leaders? And, and again, nothing in our tradition, in our oral tradition like your Hadith or Talmud or, or in, in, in our Bible says that women cannot be leaders or women um, in, in any of those traditions. But, um, and yet, why do men get, get preference? Oh, because women are on a higher spiritual pl plane than men. It, it drives me insane. But needless to say, um, it's not it's not about higher or lower. I think that's an individual thing, and it, and it's changed. And again, with the development of the the the, the enlightenment, the rational world, um, lots of boundaries were were crossed over. Um, but I still find the religious boundary was the last one is still the last one to cross over. You know, you had women doctors, you had women newscasters, you had all these things. They thought oh, never, a woman could never do that, and um, and all, or a man could never be a teacher. It goes both ways, by the way. I, it's, I we. we we are now focusing so much on the women, we forget about men who stay home and watch their kids, and their woman is the, is the breadwinner of the house, and the pressure that they get, because they're not in their gender-specified role either. And um, so it actually does go both ways, even though we don't think about that as often. Um, but, you know, so, so, but that being said, there's, there's definitely, not only within the progressive movement in Judaism, but in all the movements of Judaism, there is more and more women um, taking equal roles, becoming presidents of their synagogues, or of their of the Jewish institutions. Um, there is now, which I never thought would happen in my lifetime, a woman who was ordained in Orthodox um, 
yeshiva who's called a rabbah or a, a rabbi, which never did I think that was ever going to happen, not recognized by 99% of the Orthodox world. But needless to say, there's that 1% that's made that breakthrough, which is, that's all it takes, you know? It's all it takes, just like what you're doing, which I find amazing, that you're, you're trying to, when I talked to, uh, to Reem the first time I met her, and I said, I didn't know that there was such a thing as Muslims for, for progressive values, and I didn't know that, you know, wow, you're actually thinking of having mixed prayer services or woman imam, like, it blew my mind because you're starting, you're starting up what happened 100 years ago for us, but like you're revolutionizing. It's very exciting. It's very, very exciting to be a positive thing about. It's not, if you're, if you're interested in that, you should, you should see what Amina Wadud is doing in the US. She led a, uh, she led a prayer as well. So there, there are a lot of people that are really working hard to do that. Um, and just on, can I add one really, really small thing, because, which is really interesting, which you probably don't know, but um, the story of Adam and Eve in the Quran uh, doesn't say that um, Eve was created from Adam's rib at all, that they were actually created uh, equally, and, uh, and also that it wasn't be, Eve isn't responsible for the fall of Adam. So even you know, in that sense, Islam provides a lot more kind of equal ground for the gender relations. Fantastic, fantastic. Did you want to mansplain this for everyone? I would love to, yeah. just make it clear a little Thanks. bit. I'll do what the church has done for centuries and just tell you exactly what women need to know about this issue. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, similarly, I mean, the Christian tradition starts with women as the first recipients of the Christian message, women disciples of Christ, with women as the earliest church leaders. It's all in our scriptures. And yet this was in a very patriarchal society. So we don't have to look too far to just see the mandate of equality. And again, that phrase of no Jew, no Greek, no male or female, all are one. Radical stuff in its time. So it's ridiculous that we've gone backwards for so many centuries to then have to claw our way back to where we should have always have been. So again, it's a no-brainer and it's a sad one. So the Christian story is one of hits and misses. There's some traditions that have priests and priestesses and bishops and uh, there's others that are still pushing back and not going that direction and the Pope said last year for all his wonderful progressive wisdom that he doesn't think the Catholic Church will ever have female priests. Um, probably the least progressive thing he's ever said. So basically yeah, it's a story of hits and misses and a sad story really but it's making some territory and, and hopefully it continues to gain traction. Thank you. Similarly I want to ask you about um uh, how open, inclusive and affirming is your faith to the participation and leadership of diverse sexuality and gender expressions? Rabbi Elson. Oh, I, I'll answer that in a second, but it just made me think of one other thing, that even though um, we think in the progressive movement we've come so far because we are having, we're, we're, we say, give good lip service to, you know, having um, women out there and leaders and, 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 uh, and men and women sit together, men and women have equal opportunities to, to fulfill all of the commandments or to do everything Jewish, you know, it sounds great, and again, I come from America, I come from the West Coast, Hippieville, so, um, I, you know, my world is different. It never occurred to me growing up that I couldn't do whatever I wanted because I was a, a girl or a woman. It, it literally never entered my head when I went to rabbinical school. It never actually was an, like, it actually literally never entered my head. So um, then I moved to Australia. <laughs> Very different. Um, <laughs> so, um, and, 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 and I was the first woman rabbi in New South Wales. And so that was a big, you know, uh, the amount of, oh my goodness, I never knew I could kiss a rabbi before. Seriously, I wanted to just, mm. um, you know, or, uh, 
you know, that being said, I probably do pay more attention to matching my kippah to my outfit than my male counterparts. But I, I don't know if that's because I'm a woman or just because of who I am. But you know, it's 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 one of those things that I just that that we've come a long way, and yet still people look at me. And just literally yesterday, I had a woman, a, wo a Jewish woman, come and say to me, you know, isn't it weird for you to wear this? It's just it's hard for me to look at. She said to me, it's hard for me to look at you. I said, thanks. Um, I, I, I love how outgoing everyone is. But you know, I'd rather they say it out loud than hold it in and think it. You know? So I, I appreciate that because it invites a conversation. So even my Orthodox colleagues, one of, one of whom I won't mention a name, said to me, I know, um, he says, do you know who I am? I said, no. And then he told me his name. I said, oh. And then I said, OK. He says, I'm your biggest enemy. I said, fantastic. Can we sit down and have coffee? And I said, now that I know that you hate everything that we do and why we do it, now we, can, now we got that over with. Let's talk. And it was great conversation. And, and so so I think better be out in the open with where, where you believe. And, and so, but, but it, it is, it's hard. When I first heard a woman's voice on, on a, on, in, a, in a leadership thing, it took me a while to get used to it. I look at myself in the mirrors. I don't have to look at myself all the time. You know, but it's, it's not a, and especially when I wear the, the, the prayer shawl as well. When I see a woman priest wear a collar, it, it also gives me a double take to, to do that. So we're just, we don't see it that often. And so it's a shock. So it takes more often to, to, to be able to acclimatize to what's normal. So we're, we're coming a long way, but we have a long way to go to make it normal. So it's a non-issue anymore. Mm. Does someone else want to talk about gender? Now I'll go back to Reem, the, the, the role, uh, the, in, the inclusion and affirmation of LGBTI folk. Okay, um, I'm conscious of time, mm. so I'm going to make this short, but it's, it's a very important thing that mm. to talk about, so if someone has a question about it, that's great, I can elaborate then. But um, it's, gender diversity in Islam is something that is accepted, but uh, is, for the most part, um, in the sense of the fact that the Quran says that there is such a thing as hermaphrodites. Uh, and people, so it's not really, we don't live in a binary world of male and female, um, but expressing uh, gender diverse sexualities is not accepted at all. So yes, that's, you, might, you, know, you might be able to swallow the fact that your son is gay, but the idea that they have the right to uh, live their life with someone else is, is prohibited because, not because it's specifically prohibited in the Quran as much as because it's, um, uh, I think, considered any sexual relations outside of marriage is prohibited, and so there's no way you can get married, so then you can't, can't live like this. But also, the story of uh, Lot uh, is in the Quran, referenced in three different sections, and, uh, but it's not clear. So the, a lot of what Muslims have deducted from it is from Christianity and Juda Ju Jewish tradition about the prohibition of, uh, of homosexuality and that the uh, people of Lot were uh, decimated for, for that particular thing. There are some scholars in the US who are arguing that that's the wrong interpretation, that they were um, you know, uh, struck down for all of the other obscene things that they were doing and the extreme, extremeness in which they were doing it. Um, but anyway, I think it's, um, I think there is room to be able to have this discussion in Islam uh, and to be able to, to think more openly about how we can respect the rights of gender diverse uh, Muslims uh, within the confines of how we understand our faith. But it remains a real 
wrestle and tension. Yeah, yeah. But, but I have to say, to credit to the Muslim community in Victoria, there have been a few initiatives over the last year to try to address the mental health issues of LGBTIQ Muslims. And it's on their radar now, and they're trying to figure out how they can do it while not offending really conservative Muslims who are going to see it as a legitimization of this sexual behavior. Mm. Um, so it's, it is, the wheels are turning, and we're, we're, you know, Muslims for Progressive Eyes is trying to help push them along so that we can have more open conversations. Thanks. Yeah, the Christian story hinges on six scriptures. That's been what's made things difficult for people. Uh, three from the New Testament, three from the Hebrew scriptures. And uh, pretty much even from a moderate point of view, you can still do a fair bit of work and digging and dancing around the three New Testament texts and still arrive at a position that's actually affirming of LGBTIQ. Uh, sadly, the church has just missed such an opportunity to be on the front foot with this issue. And I just, I've just been saddened by it for since I was young. You know, Even from someone that was very conservative, I felt this was an issue the church could have actually rallied behind and been a refuge, been a support of, been an encouragement to a community that at that time, 20 years ago, were being harshly persecuted. And it's so sad the church added to that persecution. That's just tragic. So we did an interview with Rob Bell, a Christian author who formerly had been anti homosexuality and is now very much for and an advocate for and he talked about transgender and he talked about that that is the experience of someone that doesn't identify with the body that they're in that is a story of crying out for liberation that is a story the christian church should wholeheartedly support that is someone who wants to be liberated who wants to be free who wants to be fully themselves why would we stand against that it was just such a beautifully put thing of why would we ever want to stand aside? Why would we want to stand against the full expression of love? Is that not our main kit? Is that not our main card? Is that, is not, is that not the only thing we are really truly about, love? So it's a deep sadness. Uh, for the progressive strand of Christianity, it's, it's again, it's a no-brainer. It's been resolved. It's, it is about the full inclusion of LGBTIQ uh, rights and status within the movement. Thanks, Matt. Rabbi Ellison. Um, so, briefly, it was, again, no-brainer, the progressive movement has, in theory, been accepting and, and in reality, moving towards accepting. Again, there's a, I just wanted to, there's a distinct difference between uh, sexuality and gender identity, and we tend to confuse the two, and people get really annoyed with that, because uh, they're two very, very different things. But within the, within the, the Jewish community, obviously, the more traditional uh, views against everything, and those that are, um, well, just because just we got a short amount of time. Um, but the, but the, the, the progressive movement is mostly, because it's a matter of individual autonomy, um, mostly in favor of it. My very dear, dear um, uh, thesis advisor is, like you said about the, the, the difference between the Quran and the Hadith, you know, you said that the Quran, is, you know, the word of God are divinely inspired in some way, the Hadith is, is, is not. Um, he, he believes that the, the, the Torah is the word of God and you can't go against the Torah. So he really struggled with the, the, the bit in Leviticus and he says, I can't go against that. So he, he would always always ask people when they sign their rabbinic ordination, is there any reason that you know of that you think I would not feel comfortable signing your ordination? Which basically is his way of saying, are you gay? And um, many of us, in solidarity with our gay colleagues and friends, um, didn't ask him to sign our, our certificate because we didn't. We wanted to be uh, the same. But our movement has been ordaining gay and lesbian rabbis for, for uh, 
over a decade now, and um, and it and it has been a, a non-issue. We officiate at gay marriages and and gay wed or commitment ceremonies. There was a debate: should it be exactly the same? Because it's not exactly the same. You know, are they so? There, there's been debate again amongst the clergy as to how to how to actually go through our rights in terms of of doing that ceremonial stuff. But for the most part, um, ironically, we are more likely to do a gay or lesbian wedding than we are to uh, marry a Jew to a non-Jew. That's a whole nother story. Fascinating. Fascinating. Can I add one little thing to just join the last two conversations yeah. of women and marriage equality? And that is if you removed all males over the age of 60 and then polled the rest of the population on what they, their stance on marriage equality was, 90% would be in favour of marriage equality in Australia. Who were the leaders of our churches? Who were the leaders, who were our politicians? Predominantly white males over the age of 60. So I just find that a very fascinating... Male, pale and stale. <laughs> so we're going to come to, uh, we're going to, come to a time of uh, a short amount of time of Q&A. Uh, one of the arguments against marriage equality is the fact that uh, marriage is a religious institution. Now, I was just wondering if you could sort of shed some light on uh, marriage as a re religious institution and how that um, rules out equal marriage. Thank you. Rabbi Ellison, you mentioned that this is something that actually takes place within your faith tradition. Now, how does it work and, and how would you respond? Uh, marriage within the institution of, of Judaism is about... Um, the celebration of two people coming together to join their lives and to, in a sense, be fruitful and multiply and continue the tradition, right? It's, 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 and, and that they're going to, well, we literally get married under a Jewish canopy that's representing our home, that we're going to create a Jewish home. So that's our Jewish religious institution reasons for saying things. Um, and and in fact, when the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem, one of the famous rabbis said, now that we can't reach God through the temple anymore, the, the, the best way that we can, that any human being can get to know God is through the, um, the love of husband and wife. So there's a lot of husband and wife in, in all of these things. So, so hence, in our tradition, in our progressive tradition, when we thought about how do we deal with marriage equality, are we going to have the same ceremony? Is it going to be called a marriage ceremony? Or is it going to be called a commitment ceremony? Is there a distinction between heterosexual marriages or homosexual marriages? So we had a big debate over it. And again, in our progressive movement, any rabbi could choose what he or she wanted to do to how to do it. But in the reality, just like in, I think, in, in, in modern forms of, of Christianity, I don't know as much about Islam, but, but you know, that it, it's also you, or as Jesus said, you take the spirit of the law, right? It, it's, it's the, and so we as progressive Jews take the spirit of the institution of marriage, which is about love, commitment um, to each other and commitment to perpetuating Judaism. So as long as two individuals are Jewish, hence the, the comment I made earlier, as long as two individuals are Jewish and are committed to each other in true love and are committed to perpetuating the, the, the Jewish faith and traditions, then that is how we, in a sense, justify it or accept it within our tradition. Can I add something oh, well, about Islam and the 
it's, it's interesting because um, Muslims have adopted a lot from Christianity and Judaism, um, and, the, and, and the way we practice marriage now is also, I think, one of those things that we've adopted from Christianity and Judaism in the sense that we do a nikah and we bring an imam and we have a ceremony. But in, in Islam, really, marriage is a contract between two people which can be witnessed by anybody. You know, it doesn't, you don't have to have a religious ceremony. You just have to agree with the other person that you're going to be married. Um, in Iran, they practice temporary marriages uh, where they agree to get married for a, for a year or for, you know, for as long as they, they decide they could, they could agree to be married for a day. You'll try um, before you buy. Is yeah, that, and, yeah. And, okay. and I mean, that's kind of how prostitution works there, by the way. So, but... but uh, and so you can see how some Sunni Muslims are all up in arms about that. But, but there's nothing prohibiting that in Islam because marriage isn't so much an institution. It's an agreement between two consenting adults to look after each other, uh, to, to support each other, to provide uh, comfort to each other. And, and that's, that's basically all it is. So um, there is room within that to support marriage equality as a Muslim, uh, to say, what you do in the privacy of your bedroom is none of my business. In fact, the Quran is clear about the privacy of sexuality, of, of sexual behaviors of others. And so, you know, you, you, can, you can agree to support each other. There's no reason why you can't agree to support each other, and it's none of my business what happens. So even if you don't support, you know, LGBT rights, I think that, it, uh, like, if you don't think, you don't have to believe that being gay is okay in Islam to support marriage equality, just on the basis of the fact that marriage and a con is a contract between two consenting adults. That's it. Okay, thank you. Um, I'm not going to necessarily expect that each of the three of you will respond to every question, but I will offer the opportunity, Matt. I choose to answer the <laughs> question. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for the option, though, Lucas. And I'd like to phone a friend for this <laughs> answer, too. Um, well, very quickly, th there's a discussion within the church world as to whether it should be moved within outside of a religious outside of a religious tradition there's some people in fact the church of christ are one that are having the conversation around whether it should just go totally out into a, as a, a civil uh, union and then people can then do what they want if they then want to have that blessed or done within the church fine they can do that or not so th there's that question around do we actually separate it from traditions overtly traditions and some traditions are having that conversation for me that'd be a little bit sad uh, because at the moment, the church is having to have conversations actually they don't like having, and that is, what if this goes through? You know, do we then have to do it, and what does that mean for us? Sadly, churches like the Baptist Church are actually trying to make rules in their constitutions that actually don't allow ministers, if and when it goes through, to be able to then do marriages, and actually there's some Baptist ministers, I know, that are pushing back on that. So there's debate around how the relationship of church and state and religion and civil rights should go. Um, and it's, it's, it's a tension. It's a tension. For me, it, it at the moment feels like a religious tradition, but for me, tradition, it keeps throwing back to some of our early conversation, and that's we've always seen tradition as unmoving. This is a religious tradition. This, is, this has always meant man and woman. And people on Talkback have jumped on and said, if people, if this definition of marriage changes, it violates what I've entered into. That's been an arrangement. But the thinking is that the tradition equaled this and only equaled this. And yet the tradition of marriage has evolved through polygamous relationships, through men purchasing their wife, through over the centuries, if we look at the tradition of marriage, it has been a religious tradition that has evolved and should be free to do again. 
So the fact that it changes doesn't therefore make it not traditional or not of the tradition. There's no reason why it can't continue to be a religious tradition that changes shape and morphs, and I think that's the best honouring of a tradition, is to do just that. Thank you. Thanks for your response. My name is Albert Isaacs. You made a uh, throwaway remark, uh, Rabbi Allison, which I want to ask uh, the three of you to elaborate on. As a progressive Jew, over the last 50 years, I've seen um, a fascinating uh, diversity within the progressive movement of new things coming in, but also of a uh, return to tradition and adopting things that uh, 100, 150 years ago the progressives would never do. Now, Rabbi Allison, one of your colleagues once said that everything within Judaism for modern progressive Jews is in the holy store cupboard. We're keeping many of them in the store cupboard at the, at the moment, but when we want to use those traditions, um, we can take them out. So I'd like uh, uh, your three opinions on the diversity between um, re-adopting things that have been um, set aside and, um, and newer things. I think I'm going with the idea, I don't know that I think that everything's in the store cupboard. I think everything's out there for the taking, always. And, and different people are gonna notice it and, uh, at, at, different, uh, at different times. And, and so the fact that I, I don't like putting anything away actually in the store cupboard because then you might not see it. So I like everything to be there because what is, what is interesting or catches my eye might not be interesting and catch someone else's eye. So, or be meaningful to me or, or be meaningful to someone else. So I, I like the idea of it all being out there. That being said, you, you made a comment, Matt, about um, something in Christianity about a woman not being better not to be heard. Some, I'm sure we have that in all of our traditions. It's beautiful stuff. Um, <laughs> but it's, um, I just can't hear that. But, um, but it, you know, that being said, it, it is said. And like I said earlier, I believe very strongly in not erasing um, or, or, or discounting what is written uh, down. And I think it's really important to know. And, and, I, think, and I, I think it's important to understand it historically. And so the fact that things were said at a time, you know, like for example, the, 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 the laws in Leviticus about, uh, that prohibit a man to lie with another man as he lies with a woman is in a whole section of other sexually prohibited things that you're not supposed to do, but not just sexually prohibited things, if you look at the whole section. Um, there are a whole bunch of other things, but that's what all of the religious cults were doing at the time. And if if you look at that whole section, this whole what's going on is that there's the, 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 the Israelite people are being told, don't be like those other religions because, we don't want, because the ultimate thing is we don't want you to turn away from your tradition. And so if we look at it in that historical context, we see, ah, it's not really against not doing da-da-da. It's what are, we, what, what are you not supposed to do? It's because the, the real prohibition is against losing your tradition and your connection to your Judaism and your God. So if you can maintain your tradition and your Judaism with your God, then, then so be it. Then that, that's what you do. So I wouldn't throw it out per se. I can explain it away, rationalize it away perhaps, some might say. Um, and, and there are other things that say, you know, a woman should be either, I, I had a, a woman professor 
give this amazing talk about uh, Jewish perception of the woman as a whore or the woman as like a, a Jewish saint, you know? And, and so those are the two versions that have been given. But, you know, it's important to understand what, how our tradition has seen people or seen other things over time and recognize that was in their time, this is in our time. I'll keep it really short, just yeah. to say, uh, just as I think conviction is really important. You keep tradition with conviction, but tradition without conviction, tradition for the sake of tradition and just for following, I think, is, is, not, is not worth it. Then you should open up your mind to find something else that you're, you have conviction about. Wow, great response. <laughs> so a, a tweet that I'd uh, like to honour. How can the followers of the Abrahamic faiths unite to stop racism at grassroots levels? We want to, yeah, that's right. And your answer in two minutes. <laughs> we want to, we want to, we want to finish with some practical guides, how to, hopeful, where to from here as people go out onto the streets uh, from this place with hope. I'm going to say, uh, taking from Matt's idea that he met with Reem and I wasn't there, but um, but 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 I, my answer in short is that we all come back together again and do what you said at the beginning with your prog early progressives and have a list, a big, huge butcher piece of paper, go old fashioned, old school, or bigger butcher piece of paper and, um, and, and, and start brainstorming together. Uh, I think that there's a lot that we can change if we unite together. So, I mean, racism in, part in particular, but climate change, you know, marriage equality. It's when, when we show that actually um, there is a, a stream of, of uh, um, uh, morality and ethics that crosses all of these boundaries, all of these faiths, and that this actually should be our um, boundary as a humanity, you know, that this is where we can keep people in check and say, you know, this is, you know, racism is not okay, you know, destroying our environment is not okay, and we need to go to rallies together and we need to show a united front, and that it's not all these just separate individual religions that have different um, emphasis on what they want to change, but actually all together there's a code for humanity. Um, that we're trying to uncover and progress and to keep progressing that code. It's not like a stagnant code that we're just going to replace one code with another. It's something that should be an evolving discussion over generations. Thanks. Um, well, racism is just fear. So water raises fear. And I suspect it's moving towards difference rather than away. I suspect it's about curiosity and openness, particularly to difference. But I suspect on a grassroots level, one of the best things probably all of us could do is work together to show a presence of being united and showing there's a gift and value in that. But I think for every one of us, it's also knocking on your neighbour's door of actually walking over boundaries of fear that are within you. Because the more boundaries you walk over, the more you show someone else how to walk over those boundaries for themselves too. So if we each find where's the, where is the horizon I need to cross of fear, of difference, of other... Uh, and if I can transcend that, I'm going to be an invitation to others to do the same. Without giving the backstory, I'll start with the question and go to the backstory. But the original question was, we've talked a lot about how this is the progressive movement that's leading the interfaith discussion. So the original question is, why is it not, or what would the non-progressives be explaining as to why they're not having interfaith discussions, mm -hmm. unless they are, in which case, 
why are they having them, right? So are they having them? If yes, why? If no, why not? The backstory is I became very aware as we're sitting here is that we are the choir, right? The people here tonight, we're here for this, right? So I want to make sure that we're not applying labels that then create more segregation of, oh, thank goodness, we all want interfaith and we all want to be together. And all the people who don't, oh, well, because that doesn't work either, right? So the question is, are you aware of non-progressive movements that are having interfaith conversations? And if not, why would you assume, and this is a terrible, right, or do you know, why aren't they? And if they are, why are they? I'll kick off. I'm still fumbling my way through a response to a very good question. Um, And that is that any belief can become a new fundamentalism. So the progressive movements of all of our faiths into this room can become a new bubble that wants to define itself against those jerks who are so old in their thinking. And and that's a warning to all of us. We are not the new enlightened ones and waiting for everyone to catch up to us. We need to carry forward the same openness and generosity back to those and towards those with whom have now become my other. You guys are actually less... I find my conservative Christian brothers and sisters can at times become more my other than you guys. Well, we catch up and just feel a resonance. But actually the big challenge is actually to stay in dialogue and partnership and loving union with those who actually believe really differently to me. That's the great challenge. It's very easy to be in this room and feel affirmed. So are other groups having interfaith discussion? Yes. And some of them are doing so courageously. If you have a very... If you have a belief that your faith tradition is the right one... It's bloody hard to have a conversation with another group because inherently you're wanting them to be you or to come over to your side. It's very hard to be unconditional in your love for someone. Um, And yet groups are trying to do it and generally what tends to happen whenever you meet someone face-to-face is you discover they're actually a human being and that there's not a whole lot different. So even if they're doing it with an agenda that might be a little bit interesting... It's not necessarily a bad thing in that it's about dialogue, it's about conversation, and generally God happens, connection and spirit emerges. Um, so we shouldn't be too much on our high horse that we're doing what everyone else should do. We, we should uh, be doing an inter-religious conversation within our religions. We should be trying to open and broaden out our tradition and ensuring we're broadened in that process as well. And by broadened, I mean not we move our thought, but we move our heart too, to include and incorporate them. So... Just very quickly, I'm just going to say that there are definite the the Council for Christians and Jews, the 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 JCMA, like they they definitely involve people from all streams within all of our traditions, and they do speak to each other. When I I lived in Sydney for many years, and when I was there, I was on the Executive Council of Christians for Jews with an Orthodox Jewish rabbi, um, and I said to him, I said, how is it that you have been on this council for however many years, talking to Christians where we've had you know they've slaughtered us for a long time, and um, and you refuse to sit in a room with me and you won't even look us in the face and and so he, he said he said how about if you come to my office and and join me for a cup of tea just we won't tell anybody about it so he and I met for a long time but it was much harder for us to have an inter-religious dialogue than it was to have an uh, intra-religious as opposed to an inter-religious so look thanks very much all the speakers absolutely inspiring evening um i'm really interested in attitudes to interfaith marriage and with our multicultural society you know we can expect lots and lots of more interfaith marriage 
And I'll use the example of like a, a devout Christian and a devout Muslim. I'll leave Rabbi, we'll leave out. <laughs> we'll leave out that one. To let you off the hook. <laughs> um, two people get married. Uh, they're interest, they're, they're uh, interested in each other's religions. You know, learn a bit about this one, learn a bit about that one. The, the extended families teach them a little bit and they're in love and love triumphs over all. And then the children arrive and suddenly everybody has really strong attitudes. How to bring up the children, the mother, the father, the grandparents, everybody. What's your advice to the parents? <laughs> Please tell us. <laughs> um, I think it goes back to the fact that there's truth in all religions, you know, and I think that there's no harm in children learning all of them and learning to appreciate and respect all of them and, and affiliating with all of them in different ways, you know. So in some ways they might find themselves Muslim and in other ways Christian and in other ways Buddhist, you know, and they might practice prayer in a particular way and practice Ramadan, you know, and then, and I think that that's okay because I think that that really ideally um, is this idea that we could have a universal religion that incorporates all of the messages that God have sent, has sent us is the ultimate goal that we could have. And this is not a new philosophy. There are people who have written about this hundreds of years before. There's Sufi scholars that have written about this. And I think that it's something that can be done, but it takes an open heart and a real respect for other traditions and religions. Beautiful answer, thank you. I just love the way you've asked the question and looked at the mourning that would take place for the different players in the game. That it's not just the marriage itself and the kids, but the grandparents and the friends. There'd be a mourning. Um, I don't know. I, I sense this is a new emerging struggle for us. It's a journey I'm on of what is the value of a tradition. It's the whole Buddhist metaphor of uh, don't dig six one-foot holes, dig one six-foot hole of actually find somewhere and dig deep and actually that's where you get to the water, that's where you get to the gems. Now I sort of believe that and I believe it helps to be anchored somewhere. But I'm a huge borrower and gleaner from other traditions and I'm very pluralistic in my understanding and I don't feel bound to my tradition but I do feel like a tradition helps anchor and I think the rituals and practices, the disciplines of a tradition are really helpful. So I think for that couple and family, they would need to create their own rituals and practice, perhaps choose a place to anchor. But I think increasingly, I think our culture will help us find ways to find fruit salads rather than individual fruits. And that's going to have to be there if we want to help people engage in spiritual practice. And my deepest conviction in life is that human beings need a way. We just need a way. And every religious tradition is hovering around that one idea that we need a way and we call it salvation and nirvana and all these other terms. But at the heart of it, we believe that left to our own devices, we're self-interested or selfish or we're prone towards violence or aggression, that we need something that calls us back to the better angels of our nature, something that calls us back to the depth in us, that we need a pathway of lifelong converting, of repenting, of, of turning back towards light, towards God. So I think it's possible to do that in a hybrid, pluralistic way. The main thing is we find ways to do it and we stay committed to finding a way. Uh, I think there'll be a value both in staying deeply within traditions but also in finding new, new creations. I know you told me to stay out of it. Um, 
And, and I'm finding you very diplomatic. And as I was listening to you, I completely disagree with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I do. Isn't that bizarre? But um, it's in terms of, and, and, it's, and it's funny, I find myself, you know, in the progressive camp, sometimes I'm feeling, God, am I getting too old? Am I, you know, am I moving towards my, am I becoming more conservative? But I too, I really, I really truly believe that you, that in terms of raising your children or in terms of, of, of having a family and having a tradition, that you need to be grounded in who you are. Again, coming from the United States, there was this whole big idea of the melting pot. Everybody should come in and blend and make this big, great big stew. But the problem with a great big stew is that you can't taste the individual flavors. So then there is multiculturalism, where everybody is still united in one society, one nation. And oh, I shouldn't say that. But um, but the uh, but the idea of of one country and um, and you but you have individual fruit sa- you know fruit pieces of fruit. But my problem with a fruit salad and not the individual fruit is that you're cutting up the fruit. And you're forgetting about the whole fruit. And, and so I, I believe really strongly in knowing who you are. Not knowing who you are and saying, I'm better than somebody else, but this is who I am, and I'm comfortable in my own skin, in my own beliefs, in my own traditions, that I'm going to engage with the other. And this is where racism, this is the real answer to racism. Like you said, you get out of your comfort zone, you meet the other. You, so you're not afraid anymore of the other. And so, but you have to be comfortable in your own skin to be able to face the other. And, and, and recognize where you, where you, begin and end and where the other person begins and ends and there are times where you're connected and there are times where you'll be different but I think it's really important to 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 have a but what, what if your mom is your mom is Christian and your and your dad is Muslim like you are both Right, so in, in our tradition, and this is, this is a, it's a big issue, it's a very controversial issue, because in our tradition you're not. Yeah. And so you 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 and, in, and so you said something about in the Baptist church, they're, they're not allowing people to do this. In our Jewish tradition, even in our progressive movement, we as rabbis are not allowed to officiate at interfaith marriages. We will be kicked out of our union, and if we're kicked out of our union, we're unemployable in our congregations. So it's a big thing, intermarriage in our tradition, even though there's a lot of pushback because you know, now it's growing and growing. A lot of people are, are, are intermarrying and, they're, and and a lot of the partners aren't religious, the other partners that they're marrying or they are, whatever. But, um, but one of the things, and then how are the children? Like in our tradition, you can't, be, you can't be both. Even though when I was in America, someone came up to me and said, oh, I'm a halfsy. I'm like, you're a what? A halfsy? Like I'm half this and half that. And I'm like, there's no such thing. <laughs> anyway, but, 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 but they were saying because they, you know, they do, they celebrate Christmas and they celebrate, um, and they celebrate uh, Hanukkah or they celebrate, Chrismica is what they call it over there. And so, you know, but, uh, you know, and, 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 and I know Jews and Muslims who are also married. And so, you know, and so that they try to do this, but in our tradition, in terms of, of identifying, you know, how, how are you going to raise your child? It's not to say you can't celebrate and embrace the culture and the tradition of the, the both parents or both sets of grandparents, but in terms of how you're going to raise your child in our tradition, um, we say there needs to be a single way, and it can be supported by the not the parent who's not the the dominant religion or, or whatever. But that there needs to be some sort of this is this is who you are, so that child is 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 in that relationship. But I, that being said, a lot of younger people today, including my own children, um, and 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 a lot of uh, a lot of younger people are fighting that and 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 see that as being stayed and and so forth. But that's where we're at at the moment, even in the progressive movement. 
Fantastic. I'm really, I'm really pleased that we actually uh, landed on a place of, uh, of difference, of diversity, of, uh, of, of wrestle, of I'm not sure. And in a way, it feels like we've circled back to uh, some of the early, or the early reflection on each of your journey that uh, the journey has been resourced by the bumping up against life. And uh, you know, as someone who's only six years into the journey of parenthood myself, man, nothing stretches you <laughs> like trying to explain faith to your kids. <laughs> it, is, it, is, it is a phenomenal test, but it's also you know, one of the great challenges that causes you to rise to it, to, 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 to find a new language that actually makes sense. So, folks, I think that's the spot where we're going to land this evening. I hope you've really enjoyed yourself. I've had, a, I've had an absolute blast. This has been wonderful. So, thank you for allowing me to sit at your feet, ladies and gentlemen. There you go. We hope you enjoyed our special bonus episode. And stay tuned for more that we'll put out at various points throughout the series. To hear more about what we're up to, particularly the book club and the live events, and the live events such as movies, meals, guest speakers, panels, and even an upcoming artistic evening, join our mailing list. And you'll do that through the website at beyondering.com.au, where you can see us on Facebook and Twitter. And we hope you keep coming beyondering. Beyondering.